Good morning. Welcome again. We are in Psalm 121 this morning. If you're using one of the Blue Church Bibles, that's page 516. Psalm 121, right in the middle of the Bibles, page 516. Like we said last week, the Psalms are a collection of prayers and songs that God's given us to train us uh, in how to worship Him, how to express uh, our inner life to Him uh, as a community of His worshiping people. A song of ascents. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask once again that you would pour out your blessing upon us now as we receive your word. Help us to understand what it says so that we might be transformed by this wonderful assurance of your kindness towards us in the Lord Jesus. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen. I was reading something a few days ago about how Generation Z, I'm an old fogey now, this is the generation younger than me, Generation Z is not uh, only what appears to be the most depressed generation in America, although it does appear to be that, but that it may possibly be the most depressed generation in human history. Uh, closely related to that, in line with the rest of our fraying social fabric, researchers continue to document widespread paralyzing anxiety among many young people today. In spite of technology and affluence that nearly all of our ancestors could hardly imagine were possible, we remain a desperately sad and worried people. Uh, even just talking about worry is causing some of you to be worried. Uh, Some of us are worried today about school. Some of us are worried about relationships. Some of us are worried about inflation or the climate or the outbreak of World War III. Uh, Maybe some of us are just worried about how we can make it to the next paycheck. But our scripture this morning is here to encourage us and to remind us about why we don't have to be worried, no matter what we're facing. We said last week that this chunk of the Psalms is called the Psalms of Ascents, going up. They are set in the context, we said, of God's people journeying home from a distant land. The Psalms here, like the other Psalms, but these ones in a particular way, these Psalms help us to express the fears and the longings that come with being pilgrims. The fears and the longings that come with being wanderers. But we're not aimless wanderers. We're headed home. We're headed home to be at rest with God and with his people in his perfect place forever 
and ever. But as we heard last week in Psalm 120, the first of the Psalms of Ascents, as we heard last week, to be a pilgrim making our way into the new creation means that life is very painful in this fallen old creation. And so today's psalm is the answer to that anguished cry that we heard last week. In many ways, Psalm 121 is very simple. Uh, God is saying to you, you don't have to be worried. He's communicating something simple, but don't let the simplicity deceive you. He's communicating something incredibly profound about himself, so profound that it can and it should transform everything about life in this sad and scary world. Don't worry, because God is the creator. Don't worry, because God's the redeemer. Don't worry, because God is yours. But before we get into those three points, before he so wonderfully reminds us about who he is, uh, God begins in this psalm by telling us something on a note of danger. The psalmist says there, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? We're with the psalmist, so to speak, on the pilgrim path. We're journeying with him. We look up from the dusty road in front of us, and then we look around to the landscape there, and we see the hills. And it's possible that that's a positive statement. Uh, It might be some kind of eager anticipation of getting home, getting to Mount Zion, the hill of all hills in the Bible, where God dwells in a special place. It's possible this is a positive statement. But I think it's more likely that this is actually a negative statement. In verse 2, the psalmist says that his help comes from the Lord. He doesn't say my help comes from the hills. He doesn't say my help comes from the biggest, best hill, Mount Zion. He says my help comes from the Lord. And especially in light of how the rest of the psalm develops with all these uh, discussions about God taking care of us in the midst of danger, I think this opening expression is one of fear because the hills, of course, were great hideouts for robbers who took advantage of people journeying on their ways. And so the psalmist looks around to the hills around him, but they remind him of the many threats that he's facing. And so his heart starts racing. Now, if this were us today writing a song like this, We might say, instead, I lift my eyes to the news. Or I lift my eyes to the banking app. And so he says, where does my help come from? The word here for help uh, means something far more than what we mean when we ask somebody to help us move the fridge so that we can vacuum last decade's cat hair. This word... Uh, almost always shows up in the Old Testament in the context of war and battle. It means something less like handyman and more like valiant ally or maybe co-belligerent. Interestingly, this is the word that gets used to describe Eve when she's created and God says that Adam needs a helper to subdue the earth with him. He needs a valiant ally, a co-belligerent. The psalmist looks to the threats around him. He's overwhelmed by his apparent helplessness. And he asks, am I all alone? Do I have help from anywhere? Is there anybody who will fight for me? Many of us feel like that sometimes. The psalmist says, yes. He says, my help is from the Lord. From Yahweh, the one who made heaven and earth. 
In times of danger, we, of course, are tempted to look to all kinds of things for help. All kinds of things for our ultimate resolution, our ultimate rescue. Uh, It might be food. It might be pornography. It might be politicians. It might be therapists. Or maybe not therapists. I read an article this week about how people are getting frustrated with their therapists and they're turning more and more to the occult uh, because they find it a lot more helpful and it fixes things for them in the future. Uh, That's about the oldest, one of the oldest ways that we have in our world of looking for help in desperate times. We look for all kinds of things to help us. But the psalmist says that it's God himself who is our ultimate help, our valiant ally. He's the one who comes and fights our battles with us and for us. Now, why should that be such an encouragement to us today? Why is this such an antidote to worry in the face of danger? The first thing the psalmist says is it's an antidote to worry because it reminds us that God is the creator. Because he's the creator. He says, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The first thing that we confess together as a church when we confess the Apostles' Creed is the way that we believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It's Christianity 101 to believe that the world is God's creation. That means that the world is not itself God. The world is not a part of God. Uh, This is contra paganism, contra Eastern religion and spirituality. It also means that the world does not exist by itself. The world does not exist from itself. And this is contra modern materialism. The Bible says that God created the world out of nothing, which means that neither chaos nor fate are ultimate reality for us or for our world. In other words... To confess that God is the maker of heaven and earth means that the world has a purpose. The world has a meaning. The world has an order because it's been spoken into existence by a person, not just a force, a person. A person who has always existed, who has always been what he will always be. You put all that together, and what that means is that the world is under the authority of this person. He's in charge. He did not set it and forget it, but with perfect love and perfect justice, he continues to watch over and sustain and rule every square inch of his creation at every moment of its existence all the way into eternity. So that's what the psalmist is saying in that loaded phrase in verse 2. The creation event in the past, God speaks the universe into existence, that creation event is the flip side of God's ongoing rule over his whole world in the present. This is what theologians call God's providence. God's creation is the flip side of God's providence. So why don't you have to be worried in the face of danger? Because this is God's world. This is his creation. It's not the devils, it's not fates, it's not the states, it's not your mother-in-laws, it's God's. God made it out of nothing, and so all of it remains entirely dependent on him in his perfect love and his perfect wisdom. And so the psalmist says, therefore, if this really is his world, if he really is the maker of heaven and earth, that means he will not let your foot be moved. With God watching over you, he says, you cannot even stagger. You cannot 
even stumble. Why? I love this. He says, the psalmist says, because God's always paying attention. Verses 3 and 4. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. You see, the true God is not like the God in the Epic of Gilgamesh who sends a flood on humanity. Does anyone remember why? He's really mad because they keep waking him up. They're making too much noise. He says, that's it. I'm going to flood all of humanity. God is not like one of those gods. You do not have to worry about the one creator God falling asleep at the wheel. You don't have to wonder whether he's getting too senile to handle the demands of his role. You can sleep soundly at night because God doesn't. God is always working. He rules over the world because he's the creator. So don't be worried. Second, don't be worried because God's the redeemer. He's the redeemer. Now, verse 4 says, Behold, which means pay attention. This is really important, what I'm about to say. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. There's a lot loaded into this description of God, not only as the creator of the whole world, but also now also as the guardian, the keeper of Israel. With the horrific atrocities of last weekend, the modern nation-state of Israel is on many of our screens and minds. Uh, I'm going to spend some time next week in Psalm 122 talking about what Christians should hear and understand when they now see in the wake of the coming of Jesus what we should understand when the Bible talks about Israel and Jerusalem. But the main thing I want you to see today is that with this reference to Israel in Psalm 121, we need to hear and see that God is a redeemer, that God is a rescuer of a specific people. We need to understand that God is the redeemer of a specific people. When we hear the word Israel, we should immediate, what should immediately come to mind is that God has graciously chosen and called a sinful man named Abraham to be the father of a big family, of a seed. This family, God promised Abraham, in and through your family, in and through your seed, I'm going to bring restoration to my creation. But the descendants of this man, Abraham, would end up slaves in Egypt. And in spite of their many sins, God would rescue them out of slavery because of his plan to bless the world through Abraham's family. And then after God rescued them from slavery in Egypt, God gave them clear instructions about how best to live in his world, about how they should live in light of the fact that he's been so kind to them. They would repeatedly and vehemently refuse to obey him. They would often suffer the sad, terrible consequences of it. But even so, God would continue to sustain them. God would continue to forgive them all the way up until the coming of Abraham's ultimate seed, Abraham's ultimate son, the Messiah. The man who would himself not only rule Israel, but who would in a very real sense be Israel and thereby would be the head of a new restored humanity and a new restored creation. And Christians, of course, believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. He is the Messiah. 
He is the ultimate Israel, the ultimate David, the ultimate Adam. In and through him, we believe that God is graciously making the human family new. We're going to come back to the Christian's link to Jesus in a little while. But for now, I want you to see that this psalm teaches us not to worry, not just because God's the creator of the world, although there's plenty of reason there for us not to worry, but also and wonderfully because God is the redeemer of his people. He's the creator of the world, but he's also the redeemer of his people. Not just because, like the Israelites in Egypt, he rescues us from the clutches of powers and tyrants that we could never rescue ourselves from. And not just because, but also because he forgives us, just like he did with the Israelites in Egypt. Because he forgives us for all the ways that we've rebelled against his loving rule over our lives and over our world. He rescues us and he forgives us. The God who rules over his creation with perfect power and wisdom also rules over a beloved people. Even though we failed, even though we will continue to fail to love him and his creation like we should. But it gets even better. The psalm says, don't worry because God's the creator. It says, don't worry because God's the redeemer. And last, don't worry because God's yours. God is yours. You see, God does not just mightily and wisely rule over the whole universe out there. And God does not just mercifully rescue an abstract blob of people. God's rule and God's rescue are also for you personally and individually. For anybody who trusts in Jesus. The psalm emphasizes this over and over. Uh, You see the words you and your over and over again here. Uh, There is a way in Hebrew of saying y'all. None of these are y'all. They are all you singular, you individual, you personal. Listen again to verse 5. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is my shepherd. What does that mean for you? Look at verse 5. We're told that God is your shade on your right hand. That means he's with you. It means he's closer than your own shadow. In the Old Testament, to speak of God as a shadow is not just to emphasize his nearness, but also his protection. Uh, Some of you had the misfortune of moving to Texas this summer, of all summers, and you maybe learned for the first time in your life how wonderful shade can be. Uh, One of the biblical images, uh, when it talks about God being a shadow, uh, is that of a bird hovering in the nest over the chicks, saying, get under the shadow of my wings. But God is infinitely mightier than the fiercest eagle. Uh, One way you could think about getting baptized is that it's like you now forever have a shirt on that says, I'm with him. The giant, strong protector who always goes with you. Uh, You can see this emphasis on God's protection in verse 6. It says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. It means that God does not clock out. 
His presence and his protection go with you into danger at all times, day and night. Now, for some of us, uh, we're very worried during the day. Uh, Our lives bring all kinds of stress and fear. Uh, Some of us are so overwhelmed with our daily lives that we wish we could just sleep all the time. So it's saying to you, you don't have to be worried during the day. You don't have to be worried about all the things you have to deal with when you get out of bed in the morning. But it's also saying you don't have to worry at night. You know, maybe some of you kids get kind of worried at night. Maybe some of you adults still get kind of worried at night. There's a lot of bad things that happen at nighttime. But it's saying you don't have to be afraid of the dark. All these things that keep you awake at night, the things that keep you from sleeping, you don't have to be terrified by those things. The psalmist says, because God's near you. God's protecting you. And to make sure you have not missed the point, verses 7 and 8 emphasize that God's care for each one of his people is total. It's total. Verse 7 says, he will guard you from all evil. It does not just say some evil. It says in verse 8, he's going to guard your going out and your coming in. Which I think is a way of emphasizing that God guards us at every point in our vocations. At every point in our work. Which is not quite the same thing as what we mean today by having a job. When you go out for the day's labor, whatever it is. And when you come in for the night's rest. God is guarding you. And then the psalm ends by reminding us that God's watchful care extends all the way into the future. The psalmist says, God is guarding you from this time forth and forevermore. And so, brothers and sisters, what this means is that even with the greatest magnifying glass that you could take on your entire life, you will not find a single gap. You will not find a single crack anywhere in your entire life where God's not watching over you and taking care of you. But many of you have been thinking as I've been talking, what about all this suffering in my life? What about all the things I've lost? What are all these things that baffle me and depress me? Are you really going to tell me that I shouldn't be worried? Yes, I am. Because that's what God's word says to you. Remember, this psalm assumes that you are facing real dangers. And with real dangers, you're facing real suffering. Last week's psalm was all about how God's pilgrim people suffer in the world. But even so, God continues to be the perfectly wise and mighty creator. He continues to be the perfectly loving and merciful redeemer. He continues to be your God. God rules over every inch and every second of your life. He works in and through all of it for your good. A lot of people throughout the history of humanity have looked out at the world and they have seen that there's a God. They have seen that God must be in charge of the entire world. But many of them, understandably, many of them have looked out on the miseries of the world and they've concluded that God must be a tyrant or that God must be powerless to do anything about it all. But what makes scripture so precious is that it tells us that God's not only our creator, but also that he's our redeemer, that he forgives and that he rescues. 
And what makes the New Testament even more precious is that it makes clear in ways that the Old Testament only hinted at. The New Testament makes clear that God is the loving and the merciful Father of each one of his people. One of the most frequent themes of Jesus' teaching is that he relates to God in a unique way as God's son. He's God's natural son, so to speak, and he's always been his son. Jesus is always teaching about that, but Jesus is always also teaching that when we put our hope in him as God's natural son, we get to be adopted sons, so to speak. We get to call and know God as our father, just like he calls God his father. And so when Jesus is teaching his disciples not to worry, which he does a lot, Jesus talks a lot about worry. When Jesus is teaching his disciples not to worry, he points us to the loving care of the father. Here's another example. We had one earlier in the service, but listen to this one. Jesus says to his disciples, not even one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. So this is this note. God rules over the whole entire world, even the sparrows. Who cares about sparrows? God does. God's watching over them. He doesn't even let one of them die apart from his will. Then Jesus says this, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of much more value than many sparrows. So you see, God is not only the mighty creator who is able to rule over your suffering, he is able to rule over it, and he's not only the merciful redeemer who's willing to rule over your suffering, he is willing to rule over it, he's also a good father who works through and in all of our suffering to bless us and to save us. Now it's true. In suffering, the father does discipline us. He does discipline us. We could go around the room this morning after church and many, many of you could testify from your own lives that it was the steepest and the darkest paths in your life when you met God most intimately and when he transformed you most powerfully. We all would love if God did the best things in our life when things were easy. That would be wonderful. But God disciplines us in our suffering. He changes us. He often does this by first revealing to us in our suffering how selfish and weak we are, how little we can handle. But God does not merely discipline us. He's not just some cosmic drill sergeant. He loves us. He loves you. You are his beloved child. Now, why is that? Why are you God's beloved child? Is it because God was spacing out about something and then he looked down and he saw you? He thought, oh, wow, that person is so wonderful. That person is so great. That person is so beautiful. They're doing things so wonderfully. No. The Bible says very clearly, that is not why you are God's beloved child. Uh, And you know that. Poke around in your own heart for long enough. Ask your family members or your friends to speak honestly enough. And you will quickly see that there is something deeply dirty and broken about you. It is not because you are so wonderful that God has adopted you as his beloved child. Rather, it's because when you put your hope in Jesus, you are forever united to him. One of the most frequent ways that the New Testament describes the Christian 
is as someone who is in Christ. Someone who is united to him. Jesus, remember, is the eternal son. He's always been God's son. He has now assumed a true human nature. He'll always be human now. He's always been, he always will be the object of the Father's eternal and infinite delight. And yet his life here on earth was one long maze of misery. His life culminated with a horrific crucifixion. Its spiritual torments vastly worse than its physical torments. But the father never stopped delighting in him. The father never stopped guarding him. The father, every moment, was sustaining him, was working in him and for him, until he raised Jesus from the dead in glory. You're united to him. The way it goes for him is now the way it's going to go for you. As Jesus' disciples, you are going to suffer. The New Testament says that when we suffer, we are sharing in his sufferings. We don't suffer to the same extent as him. We don't suffer in the same exact way as he did. But in a sense, our sufferings are his sufferings. Jesus says, you think you're going to have it better than me? Is the student above the master? Of course you'll suffer. But we also, now united to him, we also share in his glorious victory over sin and darkness. We're united to him. We're adopted into God's family. God has united us to his beloved son. And so now in Jesus, we are beloved children of God. The reason that you are a beloved child is not because of you. It's because of Jesus. And that's good news. We are under the perfect watchful care of our creator and of our redeemer and of our father. Hasn't he already demonstrated his fatherly love for you? By sending Jesus, his beloved son, to die for you? He hasn't just demonstrated for you in the past how much he loves you. He's also now sent his Holy Spirit upon you to unite you to the beloved son, Jesus, forever. And so what that means is that nothing can or will separate you from the Father's love, no matter what you're facing. So don't worry. You are a beloved child of the Father. Let's pray. Father, help us not to worry amidst so many stresses, so many dangers, so many troubles. Transform us into the likeness of Jesus. Forgive us for our own weakness, for our own selfishness. Help us to be more and more like Jesus, suffering with him and in him, but also now even sharing in his glory and his victory. Help us, we pray in his name. Amen.